Hello, welcome back to our Friday night live stream here on Milk and Meats. I'm Sean, and this is my lovely co-host and wife. Hey guys, I'm Lindsay. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, sweetie. Shabbat shalom, love. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We hope that uh, tonight will be, you know, good information for you. This is a topic that is debated by a lot of people as far as what the possible meaning of this phrase was in, in Genesis three, and you know. The, the feminist movement really hates this statement. Yes, they do. <laughs> I did when I was a feminist. <laughs> so we wanted to kind of dig into the statement and show you from a wealth of scripture how it's not a scary thing. Mm -hmm. It's actually very logical. It makes a lot of sense. And we're going to break it down from, as always, from the context, because you're watching this on Kingdom and Context. So we try to keep scriptures in their context, not only of the, the chapter you're reading it from, but the characters involved the words that are being used and the ideas being expressed. And you can find a contextual use of that idea as we search throughout the rest of scriptures as well. So it helps us bring clarity. I want to welcome all of our people that are here tonight. We already have a pretty lively chat. Earl Rogers, Psalm 119, Get Righteous 0303, Vicki F, Proverbs 3110, Chris R, Reaching for Truth, Cindy Valona, The Great Deception, Cindy Hoglin, Kali J, Yaz Daughter, Ark Builder CCMC, David Shearer, Samantha B, Psalm 119, Shirai Yasharel, um, Carla Malberg, and there's I think there's more in here. Brian Allen, Shabbat Shalom to everyone. And for those of you that might be celebrating Shabbat tonight, um, I hope you have a great day of peace and, and rest. If you're not, if you're interested in it, um, check out my tour apologetic series. And all it is, just you take off a day of work, one day a week, and it's just something that the uh, the creator has encouraged us to do to have a balanced life. And a part of that is that you just don't work one day a week and you rest, you, you put your thoughts, your mind on him. Uh, you don't work for money, you know, that kind of thing. It's very simple. So don't make others work. Yeah. Don't make others work for you for money. Very simple, but we appreciate everyone that's already here and uh, participating in the chat. As always, guys, if you haven't already subscribed, please do so now. Hit the subscribe button, tap the bell for notifications. That way you don't miss any shows in the future. And um, go check out our other recommended channels here on Kingdom of Context and go subscribe to those as well because uh, there's a lot of good content on there that we feel like will really you know, help you, benefit you in your walk with Christ. All right. You ready to get into it? Yes, I am. Let's look at it. Let's get into it. All right, guys. So we're going to look at this unique statement here and why... Why was Eve told that her husband will rule over her? And this is a question because, um, you know, we've gone over this first, I don't know how many times in our studies. And I guess we never really paused and like thought about this verse and asked like, what does it mean for your husband to rule over you? Because I think it's always just assumed that, he, that Adam was already ruling over Eve in the garden. Yeah. Because he's the husband and we just kind of see that nuclear family, you know, type of, you know, the husband is a, a head of the wife, spiritually speaking, as far as authority goes. And then the wife and the husband are both over the children. So it really, uh, you know, it, it's a verse that I think there's a lot of assumptions made about what it mm -hmm. means. And Sean and I didn't really think about it um, until recently, uh, quite a few weeks ago in a study that we were having where we thought, well, what could it actually mean that the husband will roll over the wife? So that was how we came to this. So 
but most people think that, like you said, Adam's already ruling over her because he's given dominion over all things right. in chapter one. Right. And so it seems to be natural that since he was created first, that mm -hmm. he must already have dominion mm -hmm. over her. But it actually kind of goes into their circumstance inside the Garden of Eden. Right. And that's where a lot of people really don't don't know. But the verse and we're, we're going to compare this particular verse with some other translations as well. But here in the in the regular Masoretic, the regular English translation, it says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth In pain. You will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, if we go and we look at this same passage in the Septuagint, it very much similarly says mm -hmm. the same thing. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your pains and your groanings. In pain, you shall bring forth children, and in your submission shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So it sounds like, you know, it sounds kind of redundant, right? That your submission would be to your husband and he'll rule over you. But yeah. it's actually talking about two different things. Right. And that's the unique part. So that's what we're going to break down for you tonight. And if we go on to Jubilees 324 with this same story, it picks up in Jubilees. He says, and he, that's the creator, was wroth with the woman because she hearkened to the voice of the serpent and did eat. And he said unto her, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your pains. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your return shall be unto your husband, and he will rule over thee. So it's the same the same wording, the same kind of concept as the verse ends, um, as we saw in Genesis 3.16. So we just wanted to dig into a little bit of this idea of what does it mean to rule over somebody? What are some other examples that we see in Scripture when they talk about ruling over somebody? Well, lo and behold, it's not very far away. It's in the next chapter. It's with Cain and Abel. And if you actually read the Septuagint translation, which is the original Greek version of the Old Testament, it actually says in verses 5 through 7 in Genesis 4, it says, But Cain and his sacrifices he regarded not. And Cain was exceedingly sorrowful, and his countenance fell. And the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you become very sorrowful? Why is your countenance fallen? Have you not sinned if you have brought it rightly, but not divided it, but not rightly divided it? Be still, to you shall be his submission, and you shall rule over him. So I had never actually seen this passage, sweetie, until I started really comparing the Septuagint with the Masoretic, you know, for, right. from the English. And it was very surprising to me to see that Cain is being told from God concerning his brother Abel. Right. Because that's the context that yes. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Mm -hmm. Cain's was not. So Cain's being told, just relax. That's what it means to be still. Mm -hmm. Just just relax. His submission will be to you and you will rule over him. So even though Cain's chastised in this moment for not doing the law of God right, and Abel was doing the law of God right, Yahweh's trying to encourage him to say, just relax, you're still going to rule over him. What does that even mean? Now, unfortunately, Cain does not relax. Yeah, he doesn't and, take that advice. Yeah, he actually, uh, you know, he adds, you know, he multiplies his, his wrongs next in, in the following verses and, and takes this weird anger out on Abel and kills him, which then further messes with this and, and starts to mess with the idea of who he'd rule over because basically he just killed the guy who's going to rule over right. it, you can't rule over someone if he's not alive so the whole concept was the father was trying to encourage him on what was supposed to be the original concept of how it was supposed to go down of why cain would rule over abel but why is the big question yeah and right? how and how yeah. so that's what we're going to continue to look at with these following verses okay guys if you look in Leviticus chapter 8, 6 through 9, we're going to see a, a, um, the same concept put into action with the children of Israel when Moses and Aaron have led them out of Egypt and they're in the desert. And now Aaron and his sons are actually being ordained and anointed with the priesthood 
over the congregation of Israel. And it says in verse uh, Leviticus 8, 6 through 9, Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. He put the tunic on him and girded him with sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod and with which he tied it to him. He then placed the breast piece on him and the breast piece he put the Urim and the Thummim. He also placed the turban on his head and the turban and on the turban at its front. He placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Well, sweetie, what's the golden plate? What's that holy crown? Well, that's a symbolism of rulership. Mm -hmm. As far as I understand it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Aaron was being made a ruler over the people right. in this moment. So this is a huge, important point of context, which is actually why in number 16, that rulership is being challenged by Korah's rebellion. Right. And just to clarify, he's not taking the place of Moses. Moses is still a ruler of the people mm -hmm. at this time, but there's there's a split through the authority um, back at the time of Levi and Judah, which we've gone over in other videos, yeah. uh, where it was the concept of king priest for a long time. You were a priest and a king. Mm -hmm. And then through this split that happened, the, the line of kings or however you want to phrase it was mm -hmm. given to Judah and the priesthood was given to Levi. So those, even though in this moment, no one from Judah is being made king. Right. Exactly. Moses is kind of like a king. Yeah. He's Genesis like 32. Um, but, He's also co-ruling with Aaron, who's been literally exactly. made in a position of rulership as the high priest over the people. Right. So that means he rules over the, the tabernacle and also all the all the generation. He's the ultimate judge. Yes. He and Moses were like, they were the guys you went to. And that's what we see happening in number 16 when these Korah and all these other uh, men, as we're about to read here, they come and they challenge the authority positions of Moses and Aaron. So it says here in the first three verses of number 16, now Korah and the sons of Izar the sons of Kohath, sons of Levi, with Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, on the son and on the son of the Peleth, sons of Reuben, they took action and they rose up before Moses together with some other sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy. That means set apart. Every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? That sounds kind of familiar to kind of an attitude that we see in modern times where people look at those who teach and say, <laughs> we all have the spirit. No man is to teach you. You are not to have a teacher. You're not to call any man, father or yeah. rabbi. And, yeah, yeah. and people get into this same attitude of we're all, we're all of the spirit. and We don't need anyone to teach us. Right. But the father had literally taken Aaron and his sons mm -hmm. in front of everybody, like we read from Le Leviticus 8 and 9, and in front of everyone with the angel there that was following them, anointed Aaron and his sons as a ruler over everybody else through the priesthood. That's why we see in the following verses here, this language is used in this disagreement in number 16 with verses 8 through 11. Moses then said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation, to minister to them, and that he has not brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking for the priesthood also? So there was two different concepts here. Uh, oh, let me finish the last, last verse. He says, therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Because he's basically saying, look, you're not, you're not, 
coming against me and Aaron. This is the Lord's decision. Yeah. So therefore, you're literally coming against the Lord. But the, the reason why he broke down his segmentation there about the Levites as a tribe being helpful ministers to the services of the tabernacle was a was a lesser position of authority than the actual priesthood mm -hmm. that Aaron and his sons held, which they would literally come near the presence of the Lord and minister um, you know, to the Lord. So the, the, the Levites would stand near the, the gate, the tabernacle or the uh, doorway of the tent of meeting, receive the gifts and offerings and, and also help with the maintenance and the cleaning. And the, and when they took down the tent of tabernacle meeting, they had to move it. So they'd help with carrying the different pieces. All this is explained to you in the book of numbers. So that's why he's having this conversation. And he's trying to say, look, you guys have already been given jobs to minister to the Lord in the tabernacle, but now you want something that's not been given to you, which is specifically a position of rulership. So this is where this big showdown happens and Korah and his dudes get swallowed up by the earth. It doesn't go well for them. So we're going to see in scripture a direct correlation to someone that is in a priesthood position, specifically a high priesthood position as well. And they are ruling people. And this is what's prophesied of our, our Messiah, Yeshua. Psalm 110, one through four, it says, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are as, are, as, are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is Yeshua being told he's going to rule from his priesthood position. That's, that's what's been prophesied of him. Now, this is why... We actually see this language expounded to us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, because a position of rulership is a position of authority, mm -hmm. and that there's a term in Scripture that you're given when you have a position of authority, you're given a name. That's what it means in the Hebrew, the Shem. You're given a name, and that directs, directly relates to your position of authority. So here in Hebrews 1, 1 through, 1 through 9, we're explained that Jesus was given a name, an authority, greater than the angels themselves. Now, this is going to matter to the Garden of Eden, guys, so just bear with us, okay? So he says in, in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 5, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much better, excuse me, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a much more excellent name, that's authority, than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And he goes on to say in verses six through nine, and when he, be, when he again be, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels of and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, the Almighty says, Your throne, O God, is forever and forever. And that righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's the key thing that we got to look at. He's above your companions. So in the realm of people that you're around, Yeshua is given the oil of gladness and anointed above his companions. 
That's why the previous eight verses explains that he's a, a priest in the heavenly realms, as the whole book of Hebrews explains, which means he's around the angels, and he's given more authority than him. He's ruling over them, which is what he tells us in Matthew 28, 19. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. So while he's in heaven around those companions, he has greater authority than them. And obviously, around everyone that he resurrects on the day of the Lord, which is the, the righteous saints of the church, he'll be our authority, which is why he's called in Psalm 110, 4, a high priest. And he also is repeated in Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, and also Hebrews 4, 14. But if we look in the Testament of Levi, as part of the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, we can see that the angels themselves have a priesthood. Now, this is told to us in Revelation 5 and other places in Scripture. We just read about it in Hebrews chapter 1. Mm -hmm. That's why it's mentioning and comparing Yeshua to having a greater authority through his priesthood than the angels, because they already have an authority through their priesthood as angels in heaven. But he, his priesthood now supersedes theirs. And so this is why in the Testament of Levi, we're going to get a breakdown with specific wording to explain the priesthoods of the angels and how we see them elsewhere in scripture. So here in chapter three, verse four through 10, it says in the highest of all dwelleth the great glory far above all holiness in heaven next to it are the archangels who minister and make propitiation to the Lord for all the sins of the ignorance of the righteous offering to the Lord, a sweet smelling savor, a reasonable and bloodless offering. And in the heaven below this are the angels who bear answers to the angels of the presence of the Lord. And in the heaven next to this are thrones and dominions in which always they offer praise to God. When therefore the Lord looks upon us, all of us are shaken. Yes, the heavens, the earth, and the abysses are shaken at the presence of his majesty. But the sons of men have no perception of these things and sin. Therefore they sin and provoke the most high. So the reason that it's going on about this is this is why Paul's using this language in some of his letters. When he talks about Yeshua, the Messiah, being made over rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. Here in Colossians 2.10, here's a quick reference to it. And in him you've been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 21, he says, which he brought about in Christ, which God the Father brought about in Christ, when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's just like what we read in Psalm 110. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's just what we read in the Testament of Levi about the angels. And every name that is named, that's every authority that's up there, Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is greater than all those. And not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to, what, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, the ecclesia, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal promise which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does this come to pass, sweetie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to explain it, right? Yes, the, <laughs> this idea to bring to light the administration of the mystery, which is for the ages, is the resurrection of the church, of the saints. This is why it says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. Because what happens at the promise? It's in accordance with the eternal purpose, the covenant at the resurrection, we get the character of God written on our heart and we are made greater than the angels. We can do the Torah better than the angels, which means we're a part of a priesthood that has more authority than the angels because mm -hmm. that's what a priesthood does is the behavior of God. And that includes all of us women. 
all of us daughters of the Lord. Yes, absolutely. So this concept here is telling, this is Paul trying to express to us that this is the, the manifold wisdom of God that will be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Because the angels in heaven are also watching this story play out. Mm -hmm. They're waiting to see the promise of God to mankind to raise us from the dead, to give us these incredible incorruptible hearts with the law written on it and make put us into this priesthood as ruling authorities because that's they know the story and they're rooting for God to win. This is the story and they want him to do it. They want him to accomplish it. This is why they love us when we come to repentance. Mm -hmm. They rejoice in heaven when we come to repentance because that's just someone else going to be uh, made in accordance with the eternal purpose for them. He also, this is why Yeshua in Revelation chapter 2 will tell us that he says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations that you're made a ruler. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, I will give them to give them the morning star, which is an idiomatic phrase for resurrection. Mm -hmm. So he's telling us who obey the deeds of the covenant, which is the, which is Yeshua's behavior. He will give us authority and rule with them, which is why we see that literally fulfilled at the first resurrection event. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So a direct correlation of the idea of a priest who's ruling. And this is exactly why that language is used, guys, in Psalm in uh, Genesis 3. Y'all realize that in Genesis 3, the in the Garden of Eden, the angels who are a part of a priesthood ruled over Adam and Eve. I don't think people realize that at all because they don't have the book of Jubilees. So they don't have much of the story of what was happening in the garden yeah. of Eden before they were kicked out. <laughs> yeah. Jub Jubilees chapter three, where it actually tells them in verse 14 that the angels were helping Adam know what to do. Right. They were instructing them on how to behave. Um, which of course that includes Eve as well. Right. So then they're kicked out of the garden. Mm -hmm. So that means they're no longer going to be under the rule or authority of those angels. Right. And now they have to do their own priesthood for themselves. And what do we see in Jubilees 3.28? That Adam is doing, uh, offering incense to God, which is a priestly duty, the day he's kicked out. See what I'm saying? So the rulership idea of telling Eve, you have to communicate this to Eve now, that, hey, as a result of this, you're, the one that you look to, is the, the one that's going to rule over you, is going to not be these angels anymore. It's going to be your husband. It's going to be Adam because he's the elder and he knows Torah better. Yeah. That's the idea. It's that simple. And he becomes the priest. This is why Genesis 5 has a specific genealogy. It's it's shown us the passing on of the priesthood. And this ad, it starts with Adam as soon as they get out of the garden. So that's how he's ruling over her. And it's not ruling over in some tyrannical, oppressive, oppressive way. way yeah. To do the law of God is to walk in love and, and fairness and justice. So uh, the way that I look at it, and my former feminist self would be so offended by this position, but I, I'm comfortable with it um, now that I'm like walking with the father and I understand him better than when I was not a believer. Um, to me, I look at it as the responsibility to be doing any form of ministering of the law 
was removed from Eve as a consequence for her being more easily deceived than Adam was. And I'm glad you said that. I'm going to say it because I'm the woman. So I'm allowed to say it and it's not offensive with me saying it because this is how I really feel. Um, Coming to the father, removing that brainwashing of feminism from myself, I've had this reawakening where I've been able to accept the fact that men and women are biologically, chemically different and our brains are different and they function differently. And emotions, you know, men and women deal with emotions differently. And I'm not afraid to say that women are a lot more controlled by their emotions than men are. Um, And sometimes that's great for our role as keepers of the home and, you know, um, nurturers of the children and all of that. But sometimes our emotions getting the best of us is not a good thing. And it can be a dangerous thing. And I think in Eve's case, it was a very dangerous thing. So the way that I see this is basically Adam and Eve were equals in the sense of they both maybe had the same responsibilities in the garden as far as the work they were doing in the garden. They were both answering to the angels as the authority over them and the priesthood that was over them. And then when they were kicked out of the garden, that position of equality as far as responsibility was removed from her. So it's not that her value became any less in the eyes of the father or her equality as of her value. She was no no less equal to Adam in how much she mattered to the father, but she was less equal in the responsibility that she had now as far as ministering the law and mediating between herself and her creator when she inevitably committed sin. So we still see examples of women in the scriptures that Mm -hmm. pressed in, learned the behavior of the father. They practiced righteousness, which is the Torah. And were rewarded for that by being able to be a minister to people in and around the father's house. Um, And some even judges like with Deborah and judges chapter four. Right. But we also see, um, you know, people literally in the Torah in Leviticus 27, you can, give mm-hmm. a woman to the temple for service. Yeah. Yeah. Which which means very similar to like the Levites like we read from the conversations between Moses and Korah in number 16:1-3. Not all the Levites were made high priest. It was only Aaron's line, only his descendants. But the rest of them could still be servants and serve and do ministry mm-hmm. to the father in other capacities for the service of the temple. Right. Which means their families, which means they're children that are girls, they're daughters. Right. This is why we see in Numbers 18, it's the language is even included in the sacrifices that are being given to the priestly priests, that even their daughters can eat it with them. Mm-hmm. Their families can eat it with them. So th- this idea um, is that the woman was never excluded. Right. It was just simply that, you know, there was a, a hierarchy that was set up. Right. That's, you know, you, Paul even talks about this in Ephesians 5, you know, mm-hmm. that, God is over Christ and Christ mm-hmm. over the church and man's over the, you know, the woman and that kind of stuff. And so there's just a, a logical hierarchy and it's supposed to be based off of who's doing the law of God better. Right. So occasionally if, if there are no men, like in the days of judges where everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, there's no men doing the law of God. Then and if there is a woman that will do it, the father will definitely bless her because his goal is to get his righteousness out there. Right. Someone, someone needs to teach it. You know what I mean? If the men are not doing their job, then hopefully the women can be using sound doctrine. So this is why we would see statements like in the New Testament where Paul and Titus is telling the the mature women to teach the younger women mm-hmm. righteousness. Yeah. You see what I mean? Because they're going to be in at the resurrection. They're going to have the law in their heart anyway. 
and be able to teach righteousness to um, the entire world as they come to the New Jerusalem to learn the Torah. This is why we'd also see other passages like in Luke chapter 2 with the prophetess Anna, who's not even of the tribe of Levi. Right. She's from the tribe of Asher, and she's in the temple without leaving. She's ministering in the temple. Yeah. And she's considered a prophetess, which means someone that boldly declares the word of God and has a proven track record of knowing and doing the word of God faithfully. Yeah, so we don't see women in the temple performing sacrifices as priests. So that's the the dividing line there. Yeah. But we see women serving in the temple. Yeah. What all did that entail? We don't have all those details, you know, laid out for us. But we see women in service in the temple. We see Deborah judging Israel. Again, she's not mediating on behalf of Israel via the priesthood and sacrifices, but right. she's, she knows the law enough to be a judge of the law. Yeah. So first, the first judge, Judy, right? Exactly. <laughs> judge, <laughs> judge Debbie. <Deborah. laughs> judge Debbie. <laughs> so it's not, it's not that women are just not allowed to be involved whatsoever. I mean, obviously we are called to have our own responsibility in the body of Messiah, but we don't have that spiritual authority of mediation that the priests were given. So, you know, when we came across this question a while ago and thought to ourselves, like, what does this really mean for him to rule over you? Because wouldn't he already have been ruling over her in the garden? I mean, it just kind of dawned on us that, you know, when we're resurrected, we're all going to be on an equal. Well, you'll have the law authority, of scale of authority. Completely. Yeah, we'll yeah. all be able to keep the law as well as the resurrected person next to us. Um, Paul talks about there is no male or female in Christ. So that doesn't mean it's about your biological makeup. I think women will still look like women when we're resurrected. Yes. There's, we're, there's prophecy about daughters being resurrected. Yeah, yeah. we're going to be a new yeah. creation. So I, I don't think that that statement that Paul is making is about the physicality. I think he's talking about the authority right. And so it kind of dawned on us that if that's what we're, you know, headed for in the resurrection, then let's take that and dial it back and look at the garden and the dynamics of Adam and Eve with this spiritual authority in the garden itself. And I, and I think the biggest issue is no one's ever told or no one understands that the angels that were in the garden mm -hmm. with Adam and Eve yeah. were their rulers. Right. Um, this is why they were, they were their babysitters, yeah. you know, to yeah, teach them to what it. to do and how to be and how to live. Yeah. And then when that environment changed and they couldn't live in there anymore, Adam took the responsibility of it all. And so then she, he's now the priest of the family and everyone that's born down below them. This is how Cain and Abel would even know how to do sacrifices right. because they were taught it by somebody. They're taught it by Adam who Jubilees three tells us the, the angels taught Adam what to do in the garden. So you you know this is how it gets passed on i think i covered some of this idea in my milk and meat um heaven's bible given to enoch and jacob mm -hmm. you know where i show a clear chronological timeline of how they took these instructions that the angels follow in heaven which is what we read from the testament of levi and they passed them down to adam so then adam once he got out of the garden could then teach mankind how to practice the behavior of god so yeah and i mean just to offer my own like personal perspective on this as someone who used to be Hardcore brainwashed feminazi, like not just feminists, like I was a feminazi where I was at the level of hating all men to now I'm like this Christian by the book, enjoying submitting to my husband and letting him lead our life. From my perspective, I feel like, you know, 
I'm okay with the fact that the man was given that responsibility because to me, that's a lot of responsibility. Being the being in charge of the priesthood and the one who's meeting in it, you are held to a much higher standard. And it's not that I don't think I could be held to a higher standard. I just, to me, the pressure of all of that, I'm kind of like okay with being the weaker vessel and being the one that, you know, I sometimes maybe it's like being a blonde and chalking things up to, oh, I'm just a blonde, you know, and that's my excuse for if I say something silly or if I trip over my own feet or something. I kind of play the woman card. You know, I'm just a woman. I'm just an emotional, you know, I'm a, an emotional creature and these things get the best of me. I kind of, you know, embrace that um, character, those, those characteristics of being a woman and being the weaker vessel. And so the former me would be so disgusted with the current me sitting here saying that I'm totally comfortable with this. And I'm actually kind of relieved that the man was given that responsibility of the priesthood and the mediating and making the big decisions and praying over the family and, you know, guiding the, the kids and the wife in the scriptures. Like that's a lot of responsibility. So I have to say, I'm not personally jealous, jealous of my husband that he has, he has that responsibility on him. And I don't find it offensive that that was the punishment or consequence given to Eve because also I know it's all going to be restored at the end anyways. And whatever kind of authority I may want at some point in my life, you know, I'm going to be given that authority when I'm resurrected anyways. Yeah. So <laughs> I I'm comfortable with all of that. <laughs> and as Paul tries to explain in Ephesians five, the reason why that the father chose, you know, Adam instead of Eve to, to be the one that rules in this priesthood position is because that's the, uh, that's the pattern, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that the father followed, when you know he's the almighty he made his son his son is now subject to the father that's what we just read in hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 where it's repeating psalm 45 6 and 7 and it's saying about yeshua the father says to the son you know that your you know oh god your god has made you a ruler and anointed you above your companions so it's the father god or it's a yeshua elohim ruler in the sense of the word theos and elohim in that sense god as Yeshua, your God, meaning the Father, is speaking to you. So just like Yeshua tells us, John 20, that he goes back to his God and our God, right? So even Yeshua is subservient to the Father. And then all the angels, are because they were created after Yeshua, they're subservient to Yeshua and to the Father. So it's not really a situation of preference of, of prejudice. Right. It's literally just who's created first. Yeah. And the reason why yeah, is because sense. you have more experience mm -hmm. to know right and wrong. So you're probably a better candidate to be the one to arbitrate right and wrong. Yeah. So Adam was made first. Therefore, he has eldership. He has authority. Right. And also with that, he's given a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So this is where that comes down to. So it's it's not about just, you know, him being some sort of uh, tyrant misogynist or yeah. anything like that. It's not just yeah. like he prefers men. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's simply like Adam was made first and then mm -hmm. Eve, and there was a reason for that. But, um, but, and this is something I always try to remind, you know, women, I'm glad you mentioned the resurrection that there are women at the resurrection. This mm -hmm. is not, you're not born without gender at the resurrection. You're rebirthed in whatever body that a glorified body, but when whatever gender you were before. Um, and there's only two genders at the resurrection, just FYI. <laughs> so, there will be women in heaven, okay, and there were none created in heaven before Ad before Eve was was made on the earth. Yeah, so we're like extra special, ladies. Extra special. We're like a totally, completely yeah. unique 
creation. This is why the angels who are all male mm -hmm. in heaven yep. were tempted by women when they had to come down to the earth to help mankind yep. in Genesis in the days of Jared. And so therefore they, because they didn't have any women where they were from. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is God's sailors stopping off at the port of earth. And he sees a bunch of women and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. And they're drawn into temptation yeah. um, because it's a unique thing in creation. And so that's that's something that I hope that the women truly understand is how special that is. And once the the, uh, the saints are resurrected, anyone that's a woman who's a resurrected saint, you will be probably the most unique thing. I'm not yeah. going to say special because people take that too far. Yeah. But the most unique thing in all of creation, we're already going to be a new creation at the resurrection, mm -hmm. greater than the angels made like Yeshua in his resurrection. But heaven's mostly populated by men until the resurrection. Yeah. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of women getting there. It's going to be unique. Yeah. It's going to be unique. Like but here's here's the difference, though. I just want I got to I got to finish this point. OK, because I know there's probably some women out there thinking this because I mentioned the angels lusting after women when you're resurrected and you're given the, the glorified body of Yeshua, and you're given this heart that has the law on it better than the angels. So you step into a priesthood, which means a position of rulership, better than the angels that protects you for eternity from any angel ever looking at you crossways. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Because you then are literally the representation of God. Think about Numbers chapter 16 in, the, in Korah, right? And they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron, who were the representation of God's choice to put them in authority over Korah and the rest of the people. And so when they rebelled against that representation, which was Moses and Aaron, they were destroyed. No angel is going to come up to a resurrected woman and go, man, you are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the wrong sense, right? He's not going to look at you with lust in his eyes. He will get destroyed. You see what I mean? You, that's not going to happen. So I've actually heard people bring this up, so I'm having to mention it. We talked about it in our, our seminars, but okay. this is this is something that once you understand the resurrection, once you understand the idea of the priesthood being greater than the angels, um, that actually insulates protection for you from the angels, from ever having a, a wayward thought towards you. So he's actually built this in to be perfect. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, there, there is no reason for a woman to think <laughs> that she's been given or dealt a lesser hand. Mm -hmm. The promise of the covenant is that you're made higher than the angels. And that will keep you from any of the shenanigans that ever happened during the days of Jared in the book of Genesis with rebellious angels being tempted because they were around the proximity of women. So by the time the father in the grand plan like we read about earlier, the administration of this mystery, by the time the father brings women to heaven to be around angels, they won't even have the choice to look wayward at you. Does that make sense? So that, I just hope that that blesses you. I hope that you understand it all fits together perfectly. It's a, it's a, it's like a, a wonderful plan by the father to treat his daughters with the utmost reward and respect for any of his daughters who act like his daughters, who actually pursues his behavior and does the behavior of Jesus Christ with love and compassion. So that's, anyway, I'll, I'll jump off the soapbox, but. Yeah, honestly, you know, when, when it dawned on us that this is probably what this verse is talking about is that it's the spiritual authority going on. Um, you know, it made me think that this is just another example of the father's mercy um, and the opposite of oppressing women, because, you know, we have this atheist vein in the right. world that just wants to just, 
everything about women in the Bible is bad and oppression and, and the father is misogynist and all of that. But if you think about it, this is an act of mercy because clearly women aren't necessarily fully equipped to be in this level of responsibility on a spiritual in a spiritual aspect of things. I think we're absolutely equipped to be in authority over our children, in our homes, over whatever kind of businesses we may run for ourselves. If you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, I mean, yeah. she clearly had some authority in her life. Friends and relationships. Exactly. Right? But removing that spiritual authority when it comes to ministering the law and mediating between people, because you have to have perfect behavior to be able to do that. And if you're more easily susceptible to being deceived, which don't be offended by me saying this, but I think women probably are more. I think that's why the serpent went to Eve and not Adam, because he was perceptive to the fact that she would be more susceptible to being deceived. If so, we believe Jubilees the book of Jubilees, which we do, mm -hmm. they were, Adam and Eve were in the garden seven years. Right. That gives the enemy a long time to study Eve yeah. and, and Adam mm -hmm. and try to figure out who's more likely to fall for this. Yes, <laughs> and clearly it was Eve, all right? It was yeah. clearly Eve was the one who was more susceptible to fall for that. Now, that doesn't remove Adam's responsibility of right. joining Eve in that sin. And nothing of what we're talking about tonight you know, I don't want anyone to walk away thinking that we're putting Adam in a light of, oh, well, he was just obviously the one who was so righteous. I mean, who else would be in authority? No, it has to do with who was created first, I believe, you know, because there is that order of things that we see in scripture. Well, I mean, if I may, Adam was just as susceptible to being tricked, but not from the serpent. Yeah. <laughs> so this yeah. is something that anyone can notice yeah. in life, right? Mm-hmm. Women aren't always tricked by men. But yeah, it's give and take. <laughs> yeah. But they can be persuaded to do something destructive by someone that's mm -hmm. in authority over them. And they're very susceptible to that suggestion. Whereas men, we aren't susceptible to that suggestion. We're susceptible to a woman's suggestion. Yeah. So the, the subtle serpent played this very wisely, mm -hmm. going after this because he was an angel. So therefore, he's in a position of authority knowing that he would have sway with the woman's mind, but not the man's then knowing the woman would have sway right. with the man's mind. Yeah. See what I mean? That's how he would get in. So it's, yeah, men, men have their own problems. Yes. Trust you. Absolutely. Trust me. And it's just that in this particular scenario, the, the serpent, the crafty serpent is seeing how do I, you know, deceitfully play this game to the best, uh, to the best, to the most destructive outcome. Well, he had to go after Eve first because, Women do show more susceptibility to believing bad things from those in authority over them. Yeah. And and then men show more susceptibility to believing anything from a woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even even like, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is pretty good. You should try some too. <laughs> like, isn't this exactly what the father said not to do? And she's like, yeah, I don't even know what you mean. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, I, I can see that conversation going down. And both of them are at fault. Mm -hmm. um, Adam for the wrong reasons. Yes. And, you know, it's just the way it goes. But ultimately, the father is showing mercy here by for the rest of that gender. You know, we are not going to be in that role of responsibility. We lost that privilege. And I just wanted to share a comment that I saw up here because this is exactly what I'm talking about. So Karen says, any woman that truly understands Torah, in my opinion, would be grateful for the way the father has set up marriage. And that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm, I'm grateful for it. I don't want to come across sounding like like I couldn't handle the level of righteousness that men are held to, but I just have to say there's a little bit of a relief in my mind 
when I consider this dynamic here where the men actually got way more of the responsibility, they're the ones who go to war, ladies. <laughs> like, if any ladies watching this are offended by the things that I'm saying, you know, go sign up for the Marines. Go sign up for the Army. Like, if you want to, you know, live that role of a, of a man that God ordained, don't forget, it's not just about the priesthood. It's about who fights the battles, who builds the cities, who creates the economies and does all of the work with the, the markets and the trade and all of that stuff. And I mean, scientifically speaking, even we know that men's brains are more geared towards those kinds of things, commerce, economy, markets, you know, those kind of things. There are things that Sean and his business partners talk about that I sit there and my eyes go across. And Maybe it's because I'm a woman. Maybe it's because that's not how my brain works, but I'm pretty sure it's because I'm a woman and they're men. And those are the things that their brains are more geared towards. Now, I think we're living in a time of modernity where brains are being changed. Uh, chemistry is being changed um, by the things that are being pumped into our bodies and dumped into the air. And there aren't as many men these days that would agree with what Sean and I are talking about with our roles and the way that our brains are designed and what men um, are drawn towards versus what women are drawn towards. I mean, we're seeing a blurring of those lines because of vaccines and um, just transgender programming in, in general. But if we're going back to creation, this scientifically speaking, there are these actual differences in the male and the female brains. So it's not it shouldn't be an emotional thing for me to be saying these things. Um, it should be accepted as this is kind of just how I'm made and how he's made and how father has, you know, made marriage to be and the authority structure within that marriage. So yeah, Karen, I agree with you. You know, I'm personally also grateful for the way that he has set up marriage. Um, and I, I embrace that now. So we, it looks like we had a question come in um, from Dave Lynn 786 <laughs> saying, what about when your husband doesn't follow Torah, a Christian, but a Christian, but doesn't believe in Torah. Well, uh, Dave Lynn 76, we've actually addressed this a couple of weeks ago. We did an entire episode on this about what what if my friends and family don't keep Torah? And we talk about this exact scenario all throughout that. I'm actually going to put that link in the chat right now for you. And um, it's the latest comment in the chat. OK, so go check that out if you like. Um, you can click on the link from here or you can go to the title of this video in our milk and meat playlist. It's, it was only like two or three weeks ago. And we go over all the different scenarios mm -hmm. and we talk about how, you know, if they're a Christian, they actually do keep Torah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the big misunderstanding with this word Torah. Right. It literally means you're practicing the behavior of Jesus. And Christians are taught. We all came into Christianity through belief in Jesus. And most of us in the United States came in through some sort of altar call moment at a church. Right. Where we put our faith in Christ. And therefore, we start the discipleship process of trying to be like Christ. Yeah. See, so this idea of this Torah observance that came along in the last 15, 20 years is something where people realize that we do a little bit more than the Ten Commandments because there's more that applies to us. And, but unfortunately, there's a lot of semantic use of that term where people have started to create an own denomination out of it by saying, oh, we're Torah and they're Christian. Well, that's not technically correct. Yeah. You're both Christians. You're both Christians and you're actually both keeping Torah. Yeah. You just have a different understanding of which which instructions of the law that apply to you. So I, I think the whole uh, dichotomy that you're dealing with is the false premise to begin with. And that dichotomy is instilled by the enemy to create division. So 
we had this is why we talk about this in that in that episode. So please go check that out. I think it'll greatly benefit you and hopefully bring you a lot of peace to your situation if yes. that's your situation. Yeah, and I would just like to add that. Okay, just so everyone knows, Sean and I have only been married for just over two years. Okay, we're not unequally yoked in any form or fashion. We both, you know, we both keep Torah. We both uh, believe in the biblical cosmology. There are a lot of things that we can't, we're not qualified to give advice on. So I know that there's a tendency to look at people who are teaching the scriptures, especially a, a married couple. And there's a tendency to want to just ask them advice on marriages. And Sean and I are pretty unabashedly upfront about the fact that we don't feel we're qualified to give much marriage advice. What I would say about someone being in an unequally yoked marriage, if you're considering yourself unequally yoked because you keep Torah and your husband doesn't keep Torah, continue watching our shows, continue watching the teachings on our channel to understand what Sean was just explaining. Because the way that you're going to bring that yoking in, or at least a level of compromise, I think, is by trying to explain to that husband that, hey, we actually really believe all the same things. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, you're, you accept Jesus as your savior. You believe adultery is a sin. You believe stealing is sin. You believe witchcraft is sin. You know, you can list off all of these things that you know that person is going to agree with you is sin. And so you can at least try to come to the understanding that there are things that we agree on. We're not unequally yoked here. There are just some things that I feel still, I still want to honor and respect. And maybe you're not there yet. So I, Sean and I can't really give marriage advice because we're still learning how to do it ourselves and we're not unequally yoked either. And so it's not wise to try and give people advice on things that you really haven't experienced yourself or you haven't studied or gone to school for. I don't know. One thing that I always tell people if they ask me for marriage advice, I suggest counseling. If you are at a point where you're so uneasy in the things going on with your marriage, I would absolutely recommend going to a professional marriage counselor, whether they're, if you can find a Christian one, great. If you can find a Torah observant one, even better. Um, but and one of the biggest reasons is they're trained in helping exactly. teach you and your spouse how to communicate with each other. Exactly. That's one of the most key things that, that relationships fail for is they, no one knows how to express themselves properly without attacking or hurting or feeling insecure and, you know, yeah. holding back what they need to communicate. So usually counselors are trained in teaching each other to communicate so that you guys can work it out together. It's not like you go in there and they put you under hypnosis or anything. Right. You know, it's nothing silly. It's it's just teaching you how to communicate, which is something none of us are taught growing up. Yeah. None of us are taught how to have a relationship, guys. Mm -hmm. You know, I always used to laugh and say, if, if the governments of the world really cared about us, they would teach us five different concepts starting from kindergarten. Oh? Yeah. I haven't heard this yet. Re relationships. Okay. How to work on cars. <laughs> um they would teach us um uh, sign language so oh. that we could all communicate no matter where we are in the world and they would teach us gardening <laughs> yeah yeah and they would teach us basic politics you don't have how to balance a checkbook anywhere on no. the hand no, I think that should be. They would because well, because be within politics, you have it makes you aware that there's some people that will lie to gain yeah. power over you. Yeah. Most a lot of people grow up with this ignorant, mm -hmm. naive belief that all the people that are in office have their best interests in yeah. mind. It's like, 
<laughs> but it's a real it's a reality. People yeah. really believe that. Yes. They truly We're do. We're seeing that. Yes, this now is this is how display. how the tyrants get voted in. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, like those five things. If you started teaching kids that from kindergarten, you'd have better relationships. People would there would be uh, you know so much more security in families, and you could communicate with anyone around the world, and you would all be able self sufficient, self sustaining. But <laughs> the people who rule over you, they mean to rule over you. They don't mean to embed yeah, your life. Yeah. So that's that's why. Anyway, um, we had another quick question that came in, and we actually kind of addressed this during our, our presentation tonight, but we, we can expound a little more, okay? So C. Marie is asking, are there any places that say what women will be doing in heaven? Will we have a unique place in the kingdom as well, or will men and women simply be equal after the resurrection? Well, it's not about before we dive into what exactly you might be doing on a day to day, it's about what job will you have? Think mm -hmm. about it like that. Okay. And that may dispel some of the, the vagueness. So the job that you're promised, we actually put that on screen a few minutes ago. It's revelation 20 verse six, where it says that at the resurrection, we are all made into the priesthood that's promised to us. We're made priests and Kings, priests and rulers with Christ. So we put this on screen. I'll put it on screen again for you real quick. Revelation 20, verse 6, you're made priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So when you're a priest, that's a position, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what we were talking about tonight, that the priests were rulers who reign. So this is where that means you are helping out with people. Mm -hmm. This is what in Ephesians 1, Paul's talking about with the, the administration concept is that you're helping out with people. And what are you helping them out with? Well, Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 5 tells us that all the nations of the earth in the millennial reign, we're going to come to the new Jerusalem where the resurrected saints are. That's you and me, regardless of your gender. And they're going to learn Torah. Yep. They're going to learn, practice, and do Torah, which is the behavior of the Father. So I would just say, go back to the Old Testament, look mm -hmm. up all the things the priests are doing, the good things anyway, the, the things that are instructed for the yeah. priests to do by God, and because there's some rebellious times of priests. And you see the father explaining how you interact with the people in justice and love and righteousness and helping them live their lives in peace, which is why the millennial reign is called a thousand years of peace mm -hmm. because there's peace on the earth because Yeshua, the Messiah has a whole bunch of people, his resurrected saints that are priests with him to rule and reign with him to all the people that are repopulating during the millennial reign because he's going to need the help. There's a lot of people out there, right? He's going to need the help because he can't physically have a conversation just with every single person all day long. Right. So there's going to be millions of us, mm -hmm. I would suggest millions. hundreds, hundreds of millions of us, at the resurrection who then can go out to these people groups and even one and three at a time and explain to them how to behave in righteousness and stop killing themselves and how to eat good food and how to, you know, come for the feasts and how to have joy. You know, this is the beautiful job of a priest. So this is why my wife mentioned earlier about Paul talking about, I think it's in Romans, talking about there is neither male nor female in Christ, mm -hmm. right? Because we're all going to be in a job regardless of your gender because you have been given the right heart to do that job at the resurrection. So hopefully that, that answers your question for you, sister. Yeah, one thing I want to touch on and maybe clarify just in case anyone's confused while watching us. Um, I see a lot of people talk about the kingdom. Essentially, it's a return to the Garden of Eden. So everything that was going on in the Garden of Eden, that's the whole goal that Father's trying to get us to. He wants to return us to that state of innocence and perfection. And people assume that Adam and Eve were immortal when they were created and things like that. Sean and I don't subscribe to that 
theory because the father's work in us is not completed until the resurrection. So that means the work he did in Adam and Eve wasn't completed until the resurrection because he knew they were going to have the opportunity to slip up and they slipped up and he knew they were going to be leaving the garden and going away from the tree of life, which was the reason they had longevity. Mm -hmm. They weren't created immortal. They were created from the dust of the earth. So they were created as mortals, but they had access to the tree of life that would is, uh, theoretically cause them to live forever if they had been able to stay there, but they weren't. They were uh, naked. They were innocent. They didn't know the difference between good and evil. Uh, that's what we assume based on them not being supposed to eat from that tree. So Sean and I don't believe at all that we're returning to the state of things in the garden because that was the, the small seed that was meant to grow into the giant kingdom with all these resurrected saints who understand the difference between good and evil and know not to do evil and uh, are clothed in robes mm -hmm. of righteousness. And so, so we're, we're returning to the location of the garden. Right. But, but not the, the actual state, state of things yeah. and the, the authority structure, we're going to be higher than the angels. We were below the angels in the garden. So one other thing I just want to touch on is that Adam and Eve were husband and wife in the garden. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know as far as, you know, when she was put in the garden, if she was told he's over you and he instructs you or how that worked. If they were just both equally instructed by the angels, I, we're not really, we don't have the details on that, but they were married. When we get into the resurrection, we won't be married. Right. So there again, we're, we are going back to a, a certain Look at the same location. Certain, yeah, we're going to that yeah. certain location and certain circumstances where we will again, us women will be at that level of responsibility mm -hmm. and authority that comes with being part of a priesthood. That's right. So, just to clarify, if anyone thinks that Sean and I believe that the whole goal of the father is to get us back to the garden, no, that's not physically okay. Uh, geographically let's, let's speaking, specify. Let's okay. specify. geographically speaking, the goal is to get us back to the garden, yeah. which is going to be enlarged. The it's new, going to be the, the new, new Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Is the garden returned? Right. F you know, physically speaking, spiritually speaking, knowledge speaking, uh, ignorance speaking, where we are not. The goal isn't to go back to where Adam and Eve were when they were first placed in the garden, where they were ignorant, ignorant of these things and not clothed in robes of, robes of righteousness and things like that. Um, but we aren't returning to that original marriage. So Sean and I, I'm assuming are going to be best friends in the kingdom. Yeah, we've already <laughs> I think we're going to know who we, who each other, you know, is, yeah, and yeah. we're yeah. going to know the work that we did in our mortal lives. And we're going to know we were married and everything, but just, we are not going to be man and wife. Just like when Yeshua was resurrected, he remembered everybody in his life. Right. He remembered his mother, his friends, his disciples. It, it's you, you get the same mind back. You just are perfected. Yeah. You do not have to worry about sinning anymore because you you're you're given a a truly set apart existence, right? You're given a truly the heart of God and a body that won't wear out. So this is the the promise of the covenant. Um but you're not going to be procreating. Right. So therefore you won't be having sex and that's why Yeshua tells us in Matthew 22, 29 and 30 that in heaven we won't be marrying or given in marriage, right? There's there's no procreation in heaven. It's, marriage is is it, the word sex and marriage should be should be yeah. synonymous but in our culture it's not right so that's why he would say there's no marriage or there's no given in marriage because there is no sex in heaven right because you're not given that that there's no reason for you to procreate it's still different you're eternal um this is why the angels were told they should not have taken wives and procreated and were judged for doing that because yeah. once you're made in that type of body and that type of creation 
you don't need to create or procreate to, to increase the longevity of your seed. You live forever. And you so, are the seed. Yeah, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're the promise made fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, uh, yeah, they're just you'll still be blessed beyond anything yeah. you can imagine. It's going to be beautiful. It's, it's glorious that you'll be given a body like Yeshua and get to live forever with the Father and the Son and all the angels in, in their house. And so uh, there's another quick question that came up real quick. Yah's daughter is asking, so the angelic priests are were the first corrupted priests, meaning Satan deceived Eve instead of instruction, meaning Satan. Okay, I'm going to reword this for you, sister. No offense. So you're saying Satan was deceiving Eve instead of instructing them in righteousness. Yes. Yeah. That's that's what's going on. Satan was corrupted, just yeah. like the other angels that chose to rebel. And this is what the Book of Enoch explains with lots of lots of detail. Like they they knew they were going to sin by taking wives. The the judgment where the father is is judging them. He tells them, "You were not appointed wives. I only gave wives to mankind. But you are created eternal and holy and live in heaven. You're not supposed to procreate. You're not supposed to have wives." And so um, they intentionally sinned. And before they even did it, they made a pact together, knowing that they were sinning, yeah. acknowledging with their own words that they were sinning, but they were going to make this pact and all do it together. I don't know why. I can't give you a, a back, you know, background on the philosophical reason of why they, they still went ahead with it. But they were tempted and they did. And um, as, as Azel, what we have explained on, on many episodes is Satan. Um, I do believe he is the one that tempted Eve. He's also called Gadriel in, in a, later on in the book of First Enoch. And he's someone that did not take a wife, but he's done other types of sin, which is instructing unrighteousness or bad behavior as he did with Adam and Eve. And so, yeah, he, he was a part of, I don't know if he was specifically part of a priesthood, but he's definitely part of people that are ministers for the Father to mankind. And he disobeyed that job description. You remember when I read in, in Numbers how I was displaying the differentiation between the whole group of Levites that are all considered ministers to the Father, but within that group, there's a specific few of them that are content called priests that actually do the specific holy gifts to the Father and sacrifices. And then we read in the Testament of Levi, chapter 3, that there's certain angels up there that are actually like the archangels that do minister sacrifices to the Father, but then in the other firmaments, there's other angels that are considered authorities and powers. Mm -hmm. So it's like the Levites. Imagine the, 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 the angels being like their own clan. And within their own tribe, their own clan, they're all ministers. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, verse 7. They're all ministering flames of fire sent to those who are inheriting salvation. All of them are like the Levites who administer to the tabernacle of the Lord and help the lay people understand how to do righteousness. But within them, there's a specific group that actually minister the Father in a priestly capacity. So that's why I wouldn't say that Satan was a priest, uh, but he was a part of a ministering class of angels with authority and power sent. And he's he corrupted that authority and power by teaching bad stuff to Adam and Eve and the rest of the world, which is Romans, Revelation 12 says he's the one that deceives the whole world. So, yeah. Hope yeah. that's a good explanation. Kind of break down the specifics for you. So I think that's something that I didn't really grasp until I started really delving into studying the priesthoods with you. Is that not all Levites were specifically priests? Like that's a job description. That's a job title, priest, and not every. Because I would see this phrase in the Torah, and I would say to Sean, "Why do they say the Levites and the priests? Aren't the Levites also priests? Aren't they just automatically priests?" So. 
once you start to understand there's a hierarchy within the Levites, there's a hierarchy within the Levitical priesthood, there's different duties assigned to different Levites. Some of them are priests, some of them are not priests, but they still minister in the tabernacle in certain ways. And then once you understand as on earth, as it is in heaven. So there's a priesthood in heaven with the angels, but that also means there's different duties within that priesthood. So there's, that's why that verse called some archangels right. and others just powers and authorities. Yeah. And there's, they have a hierarchy too. Um, Mr. Bear asks something unique. He says, he's not asking something. Unique. He's just adding to the conversation. He says, Sean, Eve used to get instructions from the angel as we talked about in Jubilees three. So then maybe that's why she went along so easily. Yeah. Very possible. Very possible. She's still the blatant command, right? You know, they're told not yes. to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then she even repeats that command back to the serpent. And the serpent has to reply with another rebuttal to try to trick her into doing it. So, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. That's that to me. That's why she wouldn't be afraid to even talk to the angel. Right. Right. And, and have entertained the conversation through the serpent. But I don't, I, there is some trickery involved. That's why it says she was deceived. And that Satan actually deceived her. It's kind of along the lines where most people will take instruction from someone who they think is a spiritual authority. And this right. is not just within Christianity. I mean, you should see the Buddhists and the Hindus with their gurus, you know. Right. So it's almost like it's part of the human condition to seek a spiritual authority and take advice and direction from them, even if that advice and direction goes directly against what we've been told is wrong or not wrong. Right. So, so Diego... Montiel is asking a good question. He's saying, why do angels have genitalia if they weren't meant to be used? Won't we have genitals in heaven? Won't we be complete? There's no sin in heaven, so extramarital sex won't be a sin. What? No, couldn't agree with you. Couldn't disagree with you more, brother. Um, if you're saying that there will be sex in heaven and it'll actually be outside of marriage, I would disagree on both counts, and I would disagree with lots of loving fervor that that is completely outside of scripture. So the angels are given um, genitals because they're made male, because that's a thing. Mm -hmm. To be a male and a female is a thing. There, This whole genderless idea, that's an idea from the occult. That's an idea from Pan. So this is not something that this, that's in the scriptures as any form of contextual idea of basic fundamental precept in scripture. There's female and there's male. Yeah, don't forget the animal kingdom, guys. That too, like, right. There's female, all kinds of female animals. Well, people are probably going to try to bring up frogs and all this stuff and the mutation of frogs. But the point <laughs> is, man, within mankind on day six, it's created in all of scripture, there's male and female. Jubilees 1527 lets us know that all of heaven was populated from day one with male angels. And guess what? Mankind, it doesn't say this about angel kind, but mankind says that we were made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. God's a male. So when Yeshua was resurrected into his glorified body, doesn't have a wife, it's not going to take a wife, he has a male body. He didn't come back as a, as a, a genderless, um, asexual kind of thing. You see what I mean? I mean, he, and this is a unique situation because this won't be us. He came back with the actual wounds that he had yeah. when he was killed as a testimony for, yes, this is really yeah. me. This is really I the man you saw on the cross. It's like him bringing his trophies back with him. Yeah. yeah. So, so just to be clear, none of us are going to be raised with whatever ailments or well, if disfigurements. Burned, if you're burned to death, you can't be raised with Yeah, your, with like we're, burns, you right, know, so. but Yeshua was a unique case because that was part of him needing to prove who he was and what had happened to him being raised from the dead. But yeah, I mean, he came back in pretty much the same body. It was just glorified, immortal, able to ascend to heaven. And, and real quick, Diego, the only reason there's no sin in heaven is because the behavior is good. It's not like you can do anything and it's not called sin. 
the only reason that it's there's no sin in heaven at the resurrection <clears throat> is because the, our behavior will be perfected. Uh, this is what's promised to us as a part of the covenant. Angels can sin, mm -hmm. and we don't know if they do sin. I just read a text to you where angels are making propitiation for other angels in heaven. So if you understand the process of the priesthood, that means somebody might be sinning. Yeah. Here's the difference, though, guys. The Father, His law is so loving and so gracious because it extends from Him from the mercy seat that even if you've sinned, His law makes atonement for you and propitiation right. for you. So that even if you've sinned and you still have propitiation made for you because your heart is earnest and you want to repent, He still views you as righteous in the grand scheme. That's the whole point of him giving you a priesthood, just like he would give the angels a priesthood to, so they can make a, a propitiation and atonement for themselves and for their, their brethren in heaven if anyone actually sins. And we know they can sin. So the difference between us at the resurrection and the angels now is that we're promised through the covenant that we will not sin. First Enoch 5, 6 through 9, we'll never sin again. The angels, they don't get that promise. This, again, is what we were explaining at the very beginning why we are made higher, we're going to be considered greater than the angels when we get greater because we have a greater ability for faithfulness to the behavior of the Father to never transgress his instructions. The angels will still have the ability to transgress his, his instructions. They will be considered lesser than us after the resurrection. So, yes, there can still be sin in heaven, but there's a difference in sin that leads to death and sin. And this is this requires an actual knowledge of the Torah itself, which that's probably a whole nother whole yeah. other show. It goes a little bit deeper. But yeah, but brother, I I love you. I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding in that statement in question that I had to kind of break down and unpack. Um, but yeah, I'll, stop there. I'll stop there. For me, that's the kind of question that it's not wrong for that question to pop up. I think that's the question. It's the kind of question that is natural to arise in someone who has a logical thinking brain. Like it's the same kind of question as why would God put the tree of good and evil in the garden and tell them not to eat from it if he knew what they were going right. to eat they, from they, it? They all have a test of obedience. Well, yeah. yeah. So the, the angels clearly have a test of obedience with their genitalia. But the question yeah. of why did he give them those genitalia if they weren't meant to be used? Well, those are the kind of questions that as soon as I hear myself asking them, I just stop because I'm like, that's something I cannot answer until I can be in the kingdom and ask him myself. Well, and once I'm in the kingdom and I, am I really going to care about the logics of that question? Like, why did you do this? I mean, am yeah. I really going to stand in front of Yeshua, the representative of the father and ask him that kind of a question of, well, why did you do this? If you didn't want such and such to happen, there, there may be a really good answer. And I understand your, lack of desire to seek out the, the true answer to it. Anyone but a lot, shouldn't have a lack. But a lot of people truly, the way their mind works, they they really truly dig into some of these specifics and they no, want to know. I why, get it. I know. get it. I'm I'm saying I understand where the question comes from. It's a logical question. It makes sense to ask it just like other questions that come up like the tree of uh the knowledge of good and evil being in the garden if they weren't supposed to eat of it from the first place. But ultimately well, I guess what I'm trying to say is Sean and I can't answer your question. of yeah, I, I actually think that she just did, to be honest with you, brother. Um, and you gave a great example. I don't think you realize you did. But it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right. If why even put it there if they're not supposed to eat of it? Why even give angels genitalia if they're not supposed to take a wife? It's the same concept. 
all of it's a test of obedience. So if the father, to oh. much is given, much is accepted. If the father has all the angels in heaven, he's given them everything they need. They're in heaven. As he says in 1 Enoch 15, you were created eternal. You don't have to worry about dying. You were created to live the holy life. You're living in heaven above. You don't have to work for all the stuff that the people on the, on the earth do and all the, the toil and everything that goes with their existence. You've got it made. But yet the father always places tests of obedience in front of us because that's how we show him that we love him and that we want to be there. And the people that don't want to be there anymore, they stop being obedient. I didn't even realize I had answered the question. Yeah, it's okay, sweetie. I, I just, <laughs> through all of that, we should move to on clear. to another one real quick, though. Um, Mr. Mrs. Sanchez is, is asking, uh, does First Corinthians seven eleven, which in which says she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, mean that second marriages are never permitted as long as the first spouse is alive? Um, well, we'd have to look at the context of that, and just give me one second, and I'll try to pull it up real quick. Because there's, I mean, the Torah obviously yeah. clearly doesn't instruct that the Torah says a woman can be remarried. She just has to have a certificate of divorce from the first husband. So, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand the question as always, guys, I don't want to cherry pick a verse. Cause that's how we get in trouble. Right. We want to look at the context of the passage. So you're in first Corinthians seven 11. <clears throat> okay. So I'll put this on screen. We'll read it together. And stop at verse 13 just for now but it says but to the married i give instructions not i but the lord that the wife should not leave her husband but if she does leave she, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife so this is straight straight Torah, deuteronomy 24 mm -hmm. or deuteronomy 22 i think um this is nothing out of the ordinary and but to the rest i say not the lord this is the difference, I guess. This is the rest I say, not not a rest I say, but not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her, she must not send her away. So I think the biggest issue of this of this question, Ms. Sanchez, is that it's not that second marriages are never present permitted, it's actually upon the definition of why are the two people separated? Are they separated because there's an actual divorce there? Or is it because they've just been sent away? And I think this is the big misunderstanding with Matthew 19 and Yeshua talking right. about that, what some of the Hebrews were doing, which Yeshua said was unrighteous and was causing adultery, was that they were sending the wives away and then marrying another woman. Without, with, without giving divorcing the, wives the wife. A certificate of divorce. Yeah. There had to be a legal written document that the husband was divorcing the wife, which Sean and I have talked about in our biblical marriage teaching yeah. because we've said... Okay, we're going to tell everyone right now, like, if you don't want to go get a license from your state, fine. But we believe that there clearly, there had to have been some kind of marriage document if there was a divorce document. If you had to write down, I'm legally divorcing you and you are free to go marry another, then we think, you know, there was probably some form of a, of a marriage certificate a document, whatever you want to call it, That's right, to yeah. start the whole process. So, yeah, there was a difference between putting a woman away and divorcing her. You could send her away and say, I don't want you here anymore. But if you don't actually give her legal certificate of divorce and she leaves, you don't speak for 10 years and she decides to get married to someone. Then you're making her an adulteress. She's still right? legally married to you. So yeah. you're making her an adulteress. Yeah, it's very simple. It's just people yeah. get tripped up on the words, I guess. But um, it's funny, we were talking about the angel situation. Uh, the Lion Within Us made a comment saying, the angels feast in heaven with water, wine, and strong drink as per Torah. Mm -hmm. When someone drinks, it has to relieve itself at some point. Yes. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So the question but about why, why would they have why genitals? They have genitals yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So apparently that question can be answered. I guess you well, know, here's the bigger, I stand corrected. <laughs> here's the bigger thing, sweetie. And this is what I've seen so much when it comes to the topic of angels. People forget that they're real. Yeah. They really do. They think they're like Casper the ghosts. They're yeah. not. That's fake, guys. That's Gnosticism. The scriptures, the father created you. You're real. You touch things. You drink, drink, drink water, eat food. Yeah, six days before he made you, he made angels. They do stuff too. They're yeah. real. They eat food. They drink. They use the restroom in some They're way. I don't know how that works out. They, they, they take a day of rest on the Sabbath, mm -hmm. right? You know what I'm saying? They probably yeah. sleep. In fact, yeah. in fact, in the book of Enoch, there's uh, specifically certain angels that says these are the ones around the throne of God who do not sleep. Mm. But it doesn't say that about any other angels listed in the book of Enoch or in any other books I've ever read. So it's possible that there, I mean, that there's just these very special cherubim that don't sleep, but the rest of them are just like us, which is why every time they show up in scripture, they look like a man. Yeah. They, they look just, Yeshua, who promises us that the resurrection will be made like the angels. We're given this body of the angels. This is what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus in John 3, uh, 5 through 8. And then when Yeshua is resurrected, he has that ability like the angels to move and fly and do whatever he wants. But he looks just like a man. He looks normal. And he eats food. And he drinks water with the disciples in their presence. And it just doesn't fall to the ground. He's real, guys. It's, it's a real thing. Yeah, Paul says, uh, be kind to everyone or whatever it is, because yeah. you may be entertaining angels unaware. That's right. So if they don't look just like us, at least when they're down here on this plane, then what's he talking? I mean, how could you entertain an angel unaware if that angel doesn't look just like a man sitting in front of you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. It's about you're in Facebook jail right now. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. I was put in Facebook jail, guys. I've got like <laughs> five days left in my sentence. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, right. you can send money for his commissary in our links below. <laughs> uh, okay, guys, if you have any further questions, please put them on uh, put all caps. Put them in the chat. Otherwise, we'll we'll say goodnight uh, for tonight. We really appreciate everyone showing up and, you know, and asking us questions. And um, hopefully this was you know, something that helps you understand that, you know, the priesthood is, is one of our branches on our context tree. Yeah. So this is why whenever we're talking about the priesthood and different videos, it's so important as a point of context, even all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 16 with Adam and Eve, because Adam was immediately stepping into his priesthood when he gets kicked out of the garden. But the reason why we don't hear about that in church, sweetie, is because what do churches teach? They teach right. that the Torah wasn't around until Mount Sinai with Moses and Aaron. Right. That's just that's that's how much that supersessionism dispensation style doctrine is a cancer to understanding biblical context and truly connecting with all these verses to show just how logical and reasonable all this stuff always is. That's what bad doctrine does. It segments it, makes it silly, it makes it hard to understand. So hopefully, as we explain the priesthood point of context to you guys, it's starting to give you a greater, easier picture of the earlier books of the Torah and also the fulfillment of what we're promised at the resurrection. So that's our prayer anyway. Yeah. The priesthood goes so deep into the layers of the gospel itself and understanding how things are happening and why, I mean, to the point where, you know, the, the priesthood is something that helped Sean and I kind of understand what's actually happening here in Genesis three, where Eve is being told that, Adam is going to rule over her. Like if we didn't have an understanding of the priesthood, it never would have dawned on either of us what that actually means for him to rule over her. If he wasn't already ruling over her in the garden. So 
you know, it's, it's definitely the priesthood is like a skeleton key that unlocks so much understanding in the scriptures and people probably who don't know us very well might think that we harp on the priesthoods just way too much. But if you're actually following our teachings and you're reading through the Torah with us and you're seeing, you know, our, our presentation on Yeshua, our high priest and why he had to die to be our high priest and things like that, like you'll start to understand how huge the priesthoods actually are. Um, to understanding really what's going on from the beginning to the end of the book. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you to David because he complimented me. Can I? I was going to answer a question, but yeah. Oh, okay. What 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 are you looking at? Um, David said. Yes, you are, sweetie. Thank you, David. <laughs> the, I just wanted to point it out because just for the ladies in the audience, that's something that I've actually prayed for for a long time, even before I met Sean. And I didn't even think I would be married or like wanting to date or anything. I had sworn off men and I had my two dogs and those were all the only men I needed. I had it on my heart to pray to the father to make me a proper wife. And I didn't know why he was calling me to pray that. And then six months after I started saying that prayer, I met Sean and it's still a daily prayer for me, ladies, father, please make me into a proper wife and a good helpmate. Cause that's, you know, that's well, I what I want to be in life. It. I think he has. <laughs> I don't want to be like boastful or anything. Well, I, I feel I, comfortable in my role as I'm, a, I'm the one that gets to toot the horn for okay. you. So I'll, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. I think he's answered it. But thank you, David. I appreciate it. Thanks, that. brother. Appreciate it. Obenaya, Obendaniah Silva is asking, how do you refute the no beard, no Torah teacher remarks? No. Someone that... I shave, sweetie. I shave. So no I beard shave. Yeah. means no Torah teacher. Yes, there's oh, okay. some people that claim that they won't that that you have to have a beard to teach Torah. Well, they're bigots. It's it's silly. It's silly. <laughs> they're just hang, discriminators. Hang, let's let's go to the scriptures okay. real quick, guys. <laughs> Leviticus nineteen twenty seven is where people have this misunderstanding about trimming the edges of your of your beard and your hair and this kind of stuff. This was a, a pagan ritual that was being done to uh, Canaanite gods in the region. That the Leviticus chapter eighteen through twenty. And the, the verse that that idea is coming from is Leviticus 19, 27. Please, uh, please. So the whole point of that is that um, he's that three full chapters. He's trying to explain to them, this is bad behavior that you do not need to do. Go back and read Leviticus 18 through 20. You're going to see nothing but abhorrent behavior that was done for pagan rituals to false gods for idolatry. And this is part of that is they would they would cut their hair for certain reasons. It's also a part of witchcraft where you mm -hmm. take shavings of your hair and you, yeah. you do potions and spells and things like that. So they would cut their hair in honor of certain gods and these Canaanite gods and religions. The, side, the trim the size they would mar is what the, the yeah. KGV says, mar the edges of their beards. So there is no command in scripture that you have to have a beard to teach Torah. These are people that, like I said before to the other question, they're getting caught up in a division from the enemy to treat Torah like it's its own denomination. It's just the behavior of Jesus Christ. You realize there's some people that can't even grow beards. Yeah. Are they suddenly disqualified from sharing God's loving behavior with other people in their life, which is teaching Torah? Of course not, right? So, yeah, the, the, those folks, I would just suggest they actually go back and read the, the chapters that they think they're using for that type of silly argument. And yes, I did call it silly because it's just silly. It's it's truly silly. That that command also includes not shaving the temples of your head. So right. every Torah guy that I know that has a Torah beard, they still get their hair cut. And yeah. that still includes this area of their temples here. So if you're gonna if you're gonna follow it, then you need to follow all of it. 
and not get this area of your head cut either. So you need to let that start growing out with the rest of your beard. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can see even still today, there are different cultures that have different uh, hair. I mean, look at the Hare Krishnas. They shave their heads. There are certain sects of monks that will shave just the top of their heads. So yeah. that's what I, that's I, referring to. You know, this is this is not a slant about, you know, if you're if you're if your hair is thinning or you've gone bald, this is not I'm not talking to you. No. Yeah, this but, is. But what I'm going to say, though, is there is a pattern in occultic history yeah. of, of pagan religions that they shave their heads. It's a pattern for their priests and for different uh, uh, ritualistic practices. I'm not talking about someone that's just his hair is thinning or they've went bald. That's a different scenario. That's natural. I'm talking about intentionally shaving the hair off your head for the sake of worshiping other gods and their rituals. That is something we see even today, like you said, like with the Hare Krishnas, right? Yeah. It's, it's even something they do today. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's a we have one last thing I just want to address real quick, and then we probably should stop. All right. Um, I just lost it. Here it is. Miss Julie's saying, and I just want to clear this up because I brought this up earlier. Oh. She says, I don't want to have to be concerned with sending angels in heaven. Well, you won't have to be. It's a valid concern. <laughs> you won't have to be yeah. because you will be, you may not, the words that I'm about to say right now may not process with you to the point that I would like them to, but when you're resurrected, you'll understand what this means because you'll have the heart of God and the mind of God, the mind of Christ. So therefore you will be an authority over those angels and you'll have more power than them from the spirit of God. Do you guys realize that in a priesthood, you're a conduit of the spirit of God. This is why this whole teaching about where the Melchizedek priesthood now is so destructive and so yeah. out of context to scripture because Yeshua stepped into a priesthood. And the whole point of that is his behavior qualified him for that position because the father then trusts you to use you as a conduit of his power of his spirit to affect good and change to people around you. So when you become a priest that's glorified in the Melchizedek that Christ and the in the priesthood of the Melchizedek that Christ is in, once you're resurrected and you have a glorified body and a perfected heart, the Father will trust you to be a full conduit of his spirit, which is power. And it's that same power that raises people from the dead, that creates the world, that does all this stuff. You would have literally the power to crush an angel if you i mean i'm being a little you know dramatic i guess but to crush an angel like if you were really worried about some angel as a woman and you think that because you're glorified in heaven where all the angels are that you're going to worry about some angel looking at you in a weird way if it you would literally have the power to crush him that's why i was trying to explain earlier they cannot do that that's the that's why through this process the father glorifies you in the covenant and gives you as a result of the covenant this this amazing powerful body and mind with his spirit that can flow in it. You're literally filled with the spirit of God. The angels know better. They're not going to be, <laughs> that would be a death sentence for them. They cannot do that. And that's, that's why he's waiting to fulfill these promises before he puts you around them, because they're not going to do it anyway. The ones that decided to do that, they already weeded themselves exactly. out. Exactly. They, they've already done that. Yeah. That it even says in the book of first Enoch that Michael, who's one of the archangels above all the other angels, was shuddering at the punishment that the rebellious watchers got for taking wives. None of them are ever going to do this again. None of them will rebel like that again and, and take a wife or, or take a woman to be, you know, and they won't physically be able to once you're resurrected. So I hope to assuage your fears if possible and uh, bring you hope and joy for what's to come, which is our blessed hope, the resurrection. Yeah. The angels that are going to be with us in the kingdom are angelic brothers 
They're the same ones who watched exactly what happened to those 200 Watcher Angels who decided to make that grave sin. They know they if they were going to do something like that, they would have come down and done it already. They it's been thousands of years and they have not <laughs> violated yeah. that boundary. They have continued, you know, serving the father in righteousness and, you know, been loyal to him and his commandments. So that's not something that you'll have to worry about, especially in the kingdom. But you don't even have to worry about that right now. I mean, those angels are down and locked up in Tartarus right. and they're awaiting their um, their eternal death. So, right. by the way, the only reason those angels were even on the earth to see women, to be tempted by the women was because God sent them here. You see what I'm saying? So, no, it sent them here long-term to help out mankind. This is explained in Jubilees in several places. So that's not a situation anymore. We, it's, that's not going to ever happen again. You don't need to be afraid of something like that. Last quick question. Someone's asking about cremation. This is very simple, guys. At the resurrection, you're made new. You're given a new body. It's not even made of dirt anymore. It's made of water and spirit. Cremation is simply burning you to, to you know, particles that would go back into the earth which is the same process that happens for someone that's buried in the earth. Mm -hmm. Cremation is just happening faster. Yeah. So you're still going to be, you're, you're still going to be decayed and disassembled with little micro particles back into the soil, whether you're burned or whether you just decay naturally and the, and the worms itch you up, it's still the same thing. It's still a body made of dirt at the resurrection. You're not getting a body made of dirt. You're getting a body made like the angels made of water and spirit, totally different context. Be encouraged. It's okay if people get cremated and we're, we should probably stop for the night. Thanks yeah. so much for joining us, guys. Thank you for joining me, sweetie. It's You're like, hey, it's rare that it gets to happen, you know? <laughs> it's just, you know, I just make my cameos every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, hit, the, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Please hit the like button. Share this on social media. Uh, we appreciate all of you, okay? And we'll see you guys on Monday nights.